Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. Tonight, on our very last programme of the year, we're looking back to some of the extraordinary people we met in 2022. The first person we're going to hear from tonight is photographer Jim Schofield. And last Christmas Day, he finished a solo race across the Atlantic on a 19-foot yacht he built himself in his garage. He told me of his adventures. I didn't see the sea till I was about 12 years of age, and I was very disappointed when I first saw it. So I started sailing in Glenans in Cork. A friend of mine introduced me to uh, sailing in, in Dublin, and I, I took a week in Cork, and I got the bug. Came back to Dublin and nobody I knew had a boat because I wasn't in the sailing world. I wasn't in, in Dunleary or, or Hoth any places. So I bought a little boat. The quickest way to jump in was buy a little boat. And that was a steep learning curve, as you can imagine. Jumped straight into it and learned a lot. I did my first little single hand with that. I remember the day I sailed out of... I actually joined DMYC in Dunleary. And one day, it was, it was moored in the Coal Harbour. I said, right, I'll go for this. And I sailed out and down and around a Muglins and came back up and picked up the mooring in the Cold Harbour and I felt like Christopher Columbus. I thought, wow, this is cool. And <laughs> like in terms now, it was small stuff, but to me at the time it was fantastic. Now, we're here in your home in Blessington. You built a boat in your garage. You've sailed it single-handedly across the Atlantic. Yes, it was, a, as somebody coined it, a pandemic, a pandemic project. I saw an article online in early 20 about... Building a little 19-foot boat, a sailboat, and race across the Atlantic in November 21. The idea was there was a deadline of the 18th of November 21 to start a, trans- a solo transatlantic race. Uh, and this had been brewing in my head since those early days, since my mid-20s. I was reading about all the greats, the Joshua Slocums and the Harry Pigeons and all the famous sailors. And I wanted to do a single land transatlantic forever in the back of my head. It was brewing away. I saw the ad online, I saw the, the uh, ad website that Don McIntyre formed and I just thought, it's now or never. I had to call my own bluff and say, okay Jim, do or die. So I bought the plans and we started building. And the uh, COVID hit of course and I was locked in my shed for literally seven days a week. So in a way it was a happy accident that COVID, that, that, the, that the pandemic was on because I was able to spend time doing it. And the whole thing happened right throughout COVID. I built the boat, we launched it, we started at the race in November 21, and I finished in Martinique in the West Indies on Christmas morning. The boat, let's talk about the boat. We have a picture in front of us here. It's not the biggest. It's not the biggest. It's 19 foot long, 5.8 metres. And the idea was you could fit it into a 20 foot container to ship around the world. So Don McIntyre, his idea was to get these fleet of boats built all over the world and take part in uh, basically big races around the world, like ocean races all over the place, and be able to ship the boats around. So my shed, my garage, is 20 foot long. So I knew I couldn't even build it inside that, so I had to extend the garage by two metres with with kind of rough timber and plywood, and with a makeshift extension, uh, I got the plywood and I started building. How do you even start at something like this? You get the plans... You get the plans, I do a lot of thinking. You read, I went over and over and over and mulled it over my head and I built it a thousand times in my head before I ever put a saw to wood. 
Um, you build frames, uh, build, it up so, build the hole upside down first of all, build frames, then you build a strong back to hold the frames up, and then you put on the panels. You sheet the whole thing in fiberglass, so sheet it in two layers of very heavy fiberglass cloth. And then it goes neighbouring, and we turned it over. Just before we get on to that bit, okay, the frames. The frames are made of plywood and Douglas fir combination. The frames are mainly Douglas fir with corner gussets of 9mm uh, ply. And the whole thing is held together with uh, two-part epoxy. So it's, it's absolutely rock solid. And there was one day when I had the hole finished and I, I tapped on the side of it and the whole boat rang like a bell. And then I knew that I had a boat. That all the little bits of wood had come together to make a new, complete shell. Your garage wasn't the biggest. You, as you showed me photographs here, you only had about a foot or so on either side. I had 18 inches either side, which is ridiculous. So sometimes I had to take long boards out the door, turn them around and bring them back in to make them fit, uh, to fit them properly. Uh, I built an extension in the front of it, as I said, just to make it fit. And when we took it out, I had to break down the side of the garage door and my neighbour very kindly rebuilt it for me the next day. So it was, talk about it, I, I, it was nearly a ship in a bottle. But, but we got it out and then we got the keel made um, and all the stainless steel and put it on a trailer and held for leather, we headed for Portugal. And of course, Jim made it the whole way. Now, a man who crossed the pond in the opposite direction was rower Damien Brown. He spent 112 days at sea before arriving home in Galway. He rowed his boat into Galway Dock, but first had an unscheduled landing in Galway Bay, as he told Lorna Siggins. Two guards I saw, I was sitting on the rock. Um, I called McDara, I called my weather router, Chris, uh, using the broadband satellite uplink because my own personal phone was dead. So I was sitting on a rock, no shoes, with this broadband thing trying to get a, a signal. And, um, Were you able to walk? I wasn't really able to walk, no. I had to crawl across the rocks for a little bit, uh, but just had to get away from the boat. It was, it was quite dangerous. Or it could have been anyway. It was getting there, and it was in the end. But um, And then I just saw the flashlights eventually, like 20 minutes later, behind this mound. And I was like, grand. I just started flashing my phone, torch, and sure enough, two guards. So I wasn't sure if the e-power activated, and my radio was playing up so I wasn't sure if the distress on that went out either so that's why I had to get a kind of that's why I rang the two lads first and then uh, two guards turned up and they helped me to kind of ah no 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 not at all no I was safe I was grand I was just I couldn't really walk <laughs> uh, and um, it was uh, like so so I had my sea legs right and then um, I had no perception of where the ground was because it was in the wash of the water and the rocks. So it was just falling everywhere. So that's why I had to crawl. And, uh, and Parkings was a long crawl. So I was glad to see the two lads coming. <laughs> Were you really afraid at any point? I know you've seen, probably seen worse. but I, I felt I had control of the situation until I saw the two rocks. So basically what happened was I, I just misjudged how close I was to the shore. And I looked around because I was constantly head on a swivel and there was two rocks only like I was about less than 10 seconds from hitting them. So I swung the boat around like 270 degrees like in an instant and then started rowing out into the big breakers. But they were huge and one of them capsized me and I heard the oar break and then I knew I was fucked. Sorry. Um, as in from finishing. Uh, and then the boat just, I had no choice. The boat just washed up onto the rocks and then I just got off. So I wasn't really... 
I was never afraid. It was very tense night, very tense. But I, I felt I was in control until I wasn't in control, right? That's how many cap sizes now? Five. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly, um, mentally and emotionally, like far, far harder than it is physically. Uh, my hands are, they'll be beaten up now for a while. It's just to get, you kind of get stuck into that claw grip of just gripping the oars for 12 hours a day. That's the worst thing. Uh, and uh, my backside from sitting down for uh, 11 hours a day and just been wet. Um, but generally I'm okay a huge weight loss and um, uh, that's it really and physically you know it's it's not it's not the worst thing in the world you can do physically but mentally and emotionally it's it's right up there it's as hard as hard as it gets <laughs> and that is an incredible achievement by Damien Brown congratulations to him now Damien didn't have a cat on board with him but according to Norman Frieden if he had could have proved lucky. There's a long history of cats being carried on board vessels of all kinds. The early Egyptians took cats on their Nile sailing boats in order to catch birds in the bushes along by the riverbanks. Cats were carried on trading ships in the ancient world, partly to keep rodents in check. This led to the spread of domesticated cats to many parts. Phoenician merchant vessels from the eastern Mediterranean are thought to have brought cats to Western Europe about 900 BC. Many myths about cats were held by superstitious sailors. Cats were supposed to have supernatural powers that could protect ships from bad weather. Some of these beliefs were realistic. Cats are able to sense slight changes in the weather because of their acutely tuned inner ears. Low atmospheric pressure, a usual indication of bad weather, often makes cats nervous and restless. So, in ancient times, their behaviour served as a warning to prepare for stormy seas. As well as that, cats were regarded as intelligent animals. They provided a form of companionship for sailors. It was believed to be a lucky omen if a cat approached a sailor on deck. One of the most publicised cats in modern times was called Blackie. He was the mascot of the British battleship, the Prince of Wales. At the start of World War II, this vessel was one of the most formidable warships afloat. In August 1941, she carried the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to Newfoundland to meet the US President Franklin D. Roosevelt. When Churchill was disembarking, with the sailors standing to attention as a guard of honour, Blackie came forward along the deck towards him, Churchill stooped down and rubbed its head. A photo was taken of this gentle act. The British propaganda system sent it all round the world. It contrasted with photos of the harsh face of Adolf Hitler with his menacing Alsatian. In honour of the event, the cat was renamed Churchill. Another famous cat went to sea on board the Bismarck, Germany's massive battleship in World War II. When the warship was sunk by the British in 1941, the cat was amongst the 116 very lucky survivors out of a crew of 2,200. It was found floating on a board and picked up by the British destroyer Cossack. The crew named it Oscar. A few months later, the Cossack itself was sunk by a German torpedo, losing 159 of its crew. Again, the cat was rescued. It became the mascot of the aircraft carrier Ark Royal. This ship was in turn torpedoed and sunk. 
Oscar clung to a plank and was picked up by a motor launch. Someone with dry English humour described it as angry but unharmed. After that, it was decided the cat had enough wartime adventures. It was given a home in the offices of the Governor of Gibraltar and some time later sent to the UK. It actually ended up in a home for seamen in Belfast and died there in 1955. A pastel portrait of it, entitled Oscar, the Bismarck's Cat, by Georgina Shaw Baker, hangs in the British National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And having been sunk three times, it's hard to say if having Oscar on board was lucky or not for the ship, but he was definitely lucky himself. Over the summer, I was at the Ballydehob Sea Shanty Festival in West Cork. And there I came across a group called Merfolk, who sing old sea songs in beautiful harmony. In this song, they told of a lover lost at sea. I dreamed a dream the other night Lowlands, lowlands away, my child I dreamed a dream the other night Lowlands, my lowlands away I dreamed I saw Lowlands, lowlands away, 
love has drowned in the windy lowlands. Lowlands, my lowlands, away. Early in the year, Joanna McNicholas was on a beach near Lewisburg and County Mayo with Moraid Staunton, Ocean Hero Award winner and beach cleaner. Moraid had uncovered something of a mystery and she was looking for help. I have a big jar of shotgun cartridges, the casings from shotgun cartridges, they're all used up and dead, but these come in on our shores and I really don't believe that they're all coming from Ireland. I'd love to know, I have a question for the powers that be, where do all the shotgun cartridges come from that land on our beaches? I, I recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've started putting them in my pocket rather than the rubbish bag. And you can see I have a huge jar of them gathered. And this is just one beach in Ireland. You know, they're coming in on all our beaches. I'd love to solve that mystery. Where do they all come from? Whose rubbish is this? And, you know, there's not just one piece of waste here. There's two p- components to it. There's the outside casing and then there's, a, there's the inside part, which kind of f- flares out like a, a star. But... I'd love to know where they come from. That's my <laughs> first rant out of and the way. I'd love to hear other litter groups to see, are they getting them as well and where they live? But where could that volume be coming from? Um, because that's a lot of cartridges. I think they float across the ocean and land here. I don't know, but I'd love to find out. I never hear shotguns going off around here. They're definitely not belonging to us, but where do they come from? With the help of Seascapes listeners, we were able to establish where these cartridges came from, and the answer is Newfoundland, and it can take a couple of years for them to float across the Atlantic. Professor of Biology Ian Jones at the Memorial University in Newfoundland told me they came from there and got into the water during what's known as the Tur Hunt, when hundreds of thousands of guillemots are hunted every year. It wouldn't surprise me if... if um all or almost all of them are coming from Newfoundland because that's that's the way the drift comes. Uh, the drift is very much from Newfoundland westward out into the Atlantic and then, um, you know, in the edges of the Gulf Stream eddies and things. Um, west coast of Ireland makes sense. That's where they would end up. How do they get into the water in Newfoundland first? Okay, they, we have what's called a tur hunt going on here. It's a traditional Newfoundland subsistence hunt for food. And uh, a tur is basically, well, in, in Britain, they're called guillemots. So you have the common guillemot and the brunix guillemot, and, and these are, this is a hunt for those two species, common guillemot and brunix guillemot. They're seabirds, they're very good to eat, um, and they're, um, they're harvested in large numbers. More than 100,000 birds are taken every year, and um, peak numbers was a, a take of over 1 million birds in the 1980s. Another extraordinary tale we heard about this year was how pods of orcas, or killer whales, have been attacking yachts off the coasts of Spain and Portugal in the last three years. There have been hundreds of documented attacks. Franz van Gorkum was taking his boat from Holland to Franz van Gorkum was taking his boat from Holland to the Canary Islands when they were attacked. He told me what happened to them. We came from Holland and our plan was to um, go to Spain, then follow the coast down to the Canary Islands and cross the Atlantic in December. 
What what size was your boat? What what type of yacht yeah. was was yours? Forty seven feet catamaran. Very large boat. Uh, yeah, a Fontaine Peugeot forty seven. It's a boat that weighs about nineteen tons when you have uh, all your stuff installed on it. Uh, so that's that's quite heavy as well, but it still has uh, pretty good sailing characteristics. We took it um, directly from Holland to uh, uh, Bretagne, and then from Bretagne in in one leg to uh, the northern coast of Spain to Gijón. In the Bay of Biscay, we already met some orcas about. It was a pot of about 10 orcas, but uh, they were not really interested uh, in us, so they, they left us alone. Uh, but it was quite impressive, actually. An, an orca is a very large animal. It is, yeah. It's a quite impressive animal. It almost has no enemies. I I think they're, they're not even afraid to... Um, to meet with the great white uh, shark. And they are normally not very aggressive, except when they're hunting, of course. They're about seven to eight meters long, and they weigh between 7,000 and 8,000 kilograms when they are um, grown up. But we, of course, we were aware of the, the stories. We, we were prepared in, in a sense that uh, we had read the articles from the uh, Spanish marine biologists and uh, telling you that uh, when you encounter, uh, when you have an encounter with orcas, then you should switch off the engine, lower your sails and, um, and do nothing basically. Which is which is good for the orcas, but not very good for your boat. I can tell you. Anyway, after after that, we we started following the coast around uh, A Coruña, and then uh, further south uh, down to to Portugal. And actually, we didn't see any orcas uh, when we were there. But at the moment, there is quite a lot of orca activity in that area. Um, just recently, I think last week and the week before, um, two sailboats of about 10 meters long were attacked by orcas and they actually uh, sank. So, and that was a first for me because normally they just damage your, your rudder and then they go ahead um, to another boat. But but uh, this time they um, i think it was a french boat one of them they damaged the boats uh, significantly and they um, the the people had to be evacuated so then and when when there, you were down off portugal what was your encounter with them when they yeah. attacked or went, went at your boat we were on our our way from peniche in portugal to Cascais near near Lisbon, we suddenly we we just um, put on one engine because um, because of the wind, and we were still sailing, but uh, with with one engine on, so we were motor sailing, and then suddenly we saw three orcas. They immediately uh, went for for the rudders actually. So one of them stayed 
uh, alongside the boat looking at us <laughs> and the other two they bumped into the rudders and they they completely destroyed one rudder and the other rudder was significantly uh, damaged it and must also have been, because it's been really frightening yeah it, it was but you know it all took not more than 15 minutes so um i mean they were gone before we could be really terrified actually you know it, it all went very quickly they they actually turned the boat around about 180 degrees yeah and you can imagine it it's a 19 tons catamaran and uh, the the two animals that bumped into the rudders they turned the boat around completely which they, so they, they took one each yeah yeah and they immediately went for the rudders huh? they i mean that's the first thing they uh, they touched uh, which is very strange <laughs> And we still have no explanation as to why those attacks are happening. And that's it for Seascapes for this week and for 2022. There's no programme next Friday, but we're back here again on January 6th. And until then, I would like to wish all our listeners a very happy Christmas and a prosperous new year. If you happen to be out and about and anywhere near Dunleary on Christmas Eve, you should join the annual Lifeboat Commemoration on the pier at midday. It's a fantastic event. And if you're anywhere on or near the water over the next couple of weeks, stay safe. And Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane 